those tablets to become a prince over us? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. We wanted to find out whether people in our area could name all Ten Commandments. So we sent our lead pastors out into the community to get the answer. Is it, uh, was it Thou Shall Not Kill? Yeah, Thou Shall Not Kill. That's, uh... uh, Steal, right? Right, that's another commandment, Thou Shall Not Kill. So, Thou Shall Not Kill, that Thou Shall Not Steal, anyone that may be popping in your mind right now. Uh, Thou Shall Not Steal? I don't believe stealing is right. Right, stealing is not right. Yes, that's uh, commandment number eight, Thou Shall Not Steal. Any other commandment? That, no, not off the top of the head, no. How many commandments did Moses come down with from the mountain? Ten. Excellent. Can you name any of the Ten Commandments? Um, don't lie. Okay, keep going. Um, I don't remember anymore. (laughs) Well, welcome to worship today. You know, your uh, response to this series called What Does God Expect From Me has really been off the charts. I have received so much positive input. It's amazing. You know, through the years now, as we look at different sermon series, I I have the sense that some of them create a big splash and a lot of buzz, but honestly, the impact probably doesn't go very deep. Other sermon series, on the other hand, probably impact a few people very deeply, but they don't really connect much maybe with the masses. I don't know what it is, but there's something God has done in this series called What Does God Expect From Me that I think has hit a deep nerve for a lot of people. I I just recorded a few of the comments that I've gotten on emails and notes. Uh, Somebody said, wow, I didn't know the commandments were so relevant to everyday life. And I, I think that's been a common reaction from many. One guy said, this series has humbled me. I thought of myself as being pretty righteous. I realize now that I need God's grace more than ever. I like this comment. One woman said, thanks for keeping it real. I don't feel like you're preaching down to us. You're a struggler right along with the rest of us sinners. Right on there, I'll tell you that. Another one said, the commandments can seem pretty archaic and out of tune with the times. You've helped me see how modern and relevant they really are. And I I love the positive input that uh, you all have given. You know, isn't it amazing, really, when you think about it, how relevant God's word truly is? I mean, even though these commandments were were given originally almost 3,500 years ago, there's just as fresh, they're just as personal, just as pertinent as they were that the, the day Moses walked down off the mountain with those tablets in his hands. And when we give ourselves to the pursuit of these standards, these principles that God has given, they not only contain protection for us, but they also have provision. But you know what? This series just wouldn't be complete without this 10th and final commandment. Let's, let's look at it together because it reads in Exodus 20, verse 17... You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, 
his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, as we get started today, I just want to point out about this 10th commandment that it kind of anticipates what Jesus was going to do in the New Testament. That is, it focuses not, on, not just on behavior, but it puts the spotlight on the heart. In fact, here's what's unique about the 10th commandment. This is the only one of the 10 that you can't exactly measure, really, in, in, a, in a serious way. To put it a different way, it's the only one of the 10 that focuses on the heart attitude more than just outward behavior. God is interested in what's going on inside of us, and he's given us this guideline as one of the key principles for living the best life here and having the best life hereafter. So let's jump right in. I invite you to take some notes. If you're looking in your bulletin, you might want to jot some ideas down. Let's start right off the bat by asking, what is God expecting here in this commandment? What is God expecting? Well, I would put it to you like this. You could say it in a lot of different ways. God expects us to be fully content kind of from the inside out. One commentator I read said, this commandment basically is saying that God doesn't want us to be enamored with possessions and things. He wants us to cultivate a life of contentment that runs deep and that lasts through all the seasons of life. I thought that was put pretty well. God doesn't want us to covet other people's things. He doesn't want us to have this inordinate, obsessive desire for what belongs to others or what is not currently ours. But that, that, if that's our working definition, that raises an interesting dilemma, doesn't it? I mean, on the one hand, the Bible says in Psalm 37 that God wants to give us the desires of our heart. I believe that Jesus taught us that our Father in heaven is indeed a good God. And he said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? God wants to give us the desires of our heart. So how, how do you differentiate? between what is just a natural good desire and what actually falls over the line into coveting. I like the the way Dr. Laura Schlesinger talked about this, and she said, coveting is wanting something at someone else's expense. It's desiring something where you're not just saying, boy, I would really like to have that, but... I would like to have that, and I wish they didn't have that. I heard one guy say that when he was a child, his mother taught him this principle. If he saw a nice new bike and he said, wow, I'd really like to have that bike, his mother would lovingly correct him and say, no, say, I would like to have a bike like that, and I wish he had one even better. Now, you may think that's too persnickety for a parent to do, but I want to tell you that guy today is one of the most contented guys I've ever met. And I think his mother planted powerful seeds early on in her son that, hey, 
God wants you to live a life of contentment. Say, I'd like one like that, and I wish he had one even better. So, in other words, if you go on a wonderful vacation and you tell me all about it and we rejoice together, and I say, wow, I'd like to go to that place. That's not necessarily coveting. Imitation is the more sincere form of flattery. Maybe you just found a great place to go. Hey, maybe I can go there. There's nothing wrong with desiring to do that. But if I were to say, hey, man, I resent, I envy so much that you got to go there and I didn't. I don't want you to have that pleasure. I want to have that great experience instead of you. Then that is clearly coveting. Or let's change the scenario. Let's say that we're golfing, and I, and I go out golfing with you, and you have just got an amazing swing. You can hit the ball a mile. And I say, wow, I'd like to have a swing like that. Now, is that coveting? No, that's dreaming is what that is. That's dreaming, okay? No, I wish I had a swing like that, and, and you were even better, you see, it's, it's wanting something at someone else's expense that that's what God is really warning us about here. Bob James tells of a time when he put a small circle of poison around a hill, hill of stinging ants. And these tiny granules of poison, the, ant, the ants would think, are food. And mistakenly, they begin to pick these granules of poison up and carry them throughout the colony. And Bob James writes the following. I returned later to see how well the poison was working. Hundreds of the stinging ants were carrying the poison down into their ant hill. But then I noticed a hill that was right there next to the first one. There was a place where the circle of the poison had been broken. Some of the poison was moving in the opposite direction away from the hill. You see, some smaller, non-stinging ants had found this food and were stealing it from their ant neighbors, thinking that they were getting the other ants' treasures. They were unknowingly, however, poisoning themselves. And that's what God is warning us happens here when we desire something in an obsessive way at the expense of somebody else. It's actually a sort of spiritual poison in our lives. And so the difference is the inner attitude of the heart, God says. Desiring something is not necessarily wrong, but but not at someone else's expense. So we need to ask, is this just a desire or is this a compulsion? We need to ask, is this just a thought or is this an obsession? Jesus puts the spotlight today through the new covenant on the attitude of our heart. And he's going to say to us, and we'll look at this later, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his or her possessions. So learn to live a contented life. The Apostle Paul would put it like this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Dr. John Townsend and Henry Cloud wrote a best-selling book a number of years ago. I'll tell you, so many people have been helped by some of the principles in their book called Boundaries. 
And in that book they write, and I quote, a direct result of the fall of Satan was his sin of envy. The Bible says that he had a wish to be like the Most High. He envied God. In turn, he tempted Adam and Eve with the same idea, telling them that they could be like God also. So Satan and our ancestors, Adam and Eve, were not satisfied with who they were and who they could rightfully become. They wanted what they did not have, and as a result, sin developed. And and doesn't that still describe us today? This overweening desire to try to keep up with the Joneses. One guy quipped, how can I ever possibly get out of debt when my neighbors keep buying things I can't afford, you know? And that's, that kind of describes the problem of covetousness. I think James in the New Testament captured this idea well in James chapter 4 when he writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, notice what he says here. He says there's a desire inside of you and it's leading to chaos in your relationships, in your life. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. He goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. So here's the bottom line as we've set the foundation. Covetousness can be a tremendous problem. For the follower of Jesus Christ today. It is no respecter of persons, I want to tell you. It can afflict the elderly. It can afflict the very young and every age in between. We need to ask ourselves some hard questions today in this final commandment. What does God have to say to me about this problem of a covetous heart, this lack of contentment in our lives? So I'm going to sit down now, and I want us to ask a little bit different question as we unpack this a little bit further. We've talked about what is God expecting. We've looked at what we believe coveting to mean. It's it's desiring something at someone else's expense, okay? But now let's ask a little bit different question. How can we better understand his expectation on the way to applying it to our lives? And what what I want us to do now is we're going to look at a scripture, a very interesting one, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. And I point us here to this story because it's a powerful illustration, not just of coveting, but to some of the nasty things that coveting can actually lead to. So let's look at this provocative passage together. It says, by the way, this all takes place during the time of King Ahab, And Jezebel, Jezebel was one of the most notorious queens uh, in the nation. And also this unassuming, humble guy named Naboth who owns a vineyard. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth... Hey, uh, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. You know, he's trying to paint a win-win scenario here. 
in exchange, I will give you a better vineyard. Or, look, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. By the way, Ahab was fabulously wealthy. Naboth probably was not. This vineyard was probably one of his most prized possessions. And by the way, as you're going to see, this was a piece of land, by the way, that had come to him through the allotment that God had given generations before. So in other words, this wasn't just any piece of land he'd picked up at a bargain deal somewhere. (coughs) This had great significance. It had been in the family for generations. So that's why it was so special to Naboth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. This land is more than a piece of dirt. This has special meaning to me and our entire family. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now I want you to notice here how Ahab's attitude seems to be completely different now. Notice his attitude. It says he lay on his bed, sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why don't you eat? Now, he's going to answer his wife. And by the way, Jezebel, if you've read the Old Testament, is one of the most infamous characters in the Old Testament. Uh, She was a conniving woman. She would get anything pretty much she wanted. She had a terrible demise at the end. But man, well... Uh, she did some uh, unbelievable things, cruel things in her life. And even today, it's unfortunate. Some women may get to choose. You've got a Jezebel spirit. Ladies, if anybody says that to you, it's not a compliment, okay? Just saying, just saying. you got a Jezebel spirit about you, woman. Well, that, that, that's not a complimentary thing. Jezebel was a, a really, really bad character, okay? Uh, he answered her, because I said to Nate, by the way, I envision this being kind of in a whiny voice, wowsy, wowsy, woo, woo, just kind of, I mean, I, Ahab here is just having a pity party. Do you ever get a little whiny? Okay, that doesn't apply to anybody else, all right? No, I know you get whiny sometimes. I said to him, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard. He's just so whiny and complaining. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. He is really, really pouting here. I mean, his attitude stinks. Here's what's going on. He is flat out obsessed with covetousness. And that's what today's commandment is all about. He set his eyes on that vineyard. He wants that piece of property and he's going to have it at anybody's expense. That's what he's cooking up in his heart. Well, Jezebel, his wife said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat, cheer up. She's saying, buck up guy, get over it. You're the king. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, as you read on in the story, what you see is how treacherous Jezebel really was. She threw a banquet. Naboth was like a guest of honor. He was placed at the head table. He had the seat of honor. 
And Naboth is probably thinking, well, yeah, I'm kind of a nobody here in the kingdom. They're just buttering me up. They're still trying to get my land, but they're not going to get my land. And, you know, so I'll, I'll just kind of, I'll just kind of smile as they try all these different ways. But during the banquet, during this massive banquet, Jezebel has lined up two scoundrels to stand up and give false witness against Naboth. And so during the banquet, one of them stands up and says, well, you know what I heard the other day? You guys aren't going to believe this. I heard Naboth here. I heard him curse God. Somebody said, you don't say, really? Yeah, and more than that, I heard him curse the king too. And while everybody's aghast and their jaws are dropped because that's a horrible thing, then this other guy stands up and says, you know what, I wasn't going to say anything, but since you brought it up, I heard the very same thing. I was a witness to this. I heard him curse God. I heard him curse the king. And somebody said, isn't that worthy of death? Yeah, yeah. And a mob begins to form and they actually take Naboth out and stone him to death. And while this is going on, apparently Ahab, the king, is still whining and still pouting on his bed. Let's read on. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she had orchestrated the whole thing. Okay? She had gotten hit men, so to speak, to do it. She said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. And boy, there's a, there's a little bit of lift in her voice. She's, she's kind of proud that she made this happen. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Isn't that an amazing story? But I want you to look at what happens next. There was a very popular southern preacher who used to preach a sermon years, decades ago, on this very text, and the sermon was entitled, Payday Someday. Payday Someday. And Ahab and Jezebel may have thought they were getting away with this covetous scheme, but God doesn't miss a thing, and God is into justice. So look at what God did. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he's gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? This is an amazing Old Testament example of how dangerous coveting really is. And the only cure... For coveting is contentment. You say, well, pastor, I'll tell you this right now. That's a horrible story, but I've never coveted a vineyard. What have you coveted? Have you coveted uh, a country club membership? Someone's expense? Have you you coveted uh, success? A particular position or status in life? Have you coveted someone else's wife or... Husband? You see, all of us are probably guilty of breaking this commandment. It is so easy to become consumed 
with coveting. Now, here's what strikes me about it. If you've been reading along up to this point, if you were just reading this list of commandments, it would sound pretty pithy, right? You would read, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and you'd just be zooming along. Don't do this, don't do that. But then it gets to commandment number 10, and he breaks it down with some sentences. So, so what are some of the things that we're guilty of coveting? There's some blanks in your note sheet. You might want to write some of these words in. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. That's, that's his property. Look, try, try to get that out of your heart. Don't covet their house. That's the property. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's his passion. So just make your neighbor's wife or, or husband the passion of this person's life, okay? Or is manservant or maidservant? That's his personnel. (laughs) His personnel. His ox or his donkey, those are his possessions. And notice this last line, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I don't know about you, but I think that pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? He's like making sure we get this, don't covet anything. And here's the deal, greed and covetousness are cousins. They're a part of the same family tree. And that's why Jesus our Lord taught in the book of Luke, he said this, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So God wants us to take a look at our level of contentment. Now, I don't know about you, but as I've tried to apply this to my own life this week and try to think about contentment in my own life and how contented am I, and again, as I said earlier, it's very hard to just look at someone and know from the outside if someone's contented or not, right? But I've learned a lot about contentment from my parents, My dad, believe it or not, was born in 1910. He was 50 years old when I was born. My mother was born in 1920. They were 10 years apart. Both of them lived through the Depression. So they learned to live with very little. Okay? Very little. We didn't have a lot growing up. I mean, we did have Kentucky Fried Chicken stores in in our little town. Had Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know the slogan of that? Finger licking good. We had so little. We wanted to go lick other people's fingers. I mean, we just, I'm not looking for sympathy, okay? We we just didn't, we didn't have much. True, I have watched my mom and dad many evenings make a meal of buttermilk and cornbread. It grossed me out. I didn't want to eat it. I said, Mom, is there a frozen pizza in the house or something else? Buttermilk and cornbread, as contented as they could be. Oh, they were ecstatic if they could throw a little collard greens at that from the garden. Are you kidding me? Happy, contented. Because they had grown up seeing people with so little, barely surviving. And I'm telling you this because, you know what? It challenges me today. Here's what I've mostly noticed in my life, in the lives of many of my friends and and other people I'm acquainted with. It's like the more we get, the more we want, right? 
I think you could almost make a formula, an equation, to the more people get, sometimes the more covetous we become. God is saying to you and me today, most of us have so much. He's saying, I want you to cultivate contentment in your life. That's one of the reasons I think that many of us are just in love with the book of Philippians. Because Paul, writing from a prison cell in Rome, writes the following words. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this, Paul writes, because I'm in need. And catch this next line. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. When I've got buttermilk and cornbread, collard greens, when I'm dining on filet mignon and caviar, that doesn't matter because contentment is an inside-out job. That's what we need to get today. It's not about what your financial portfolio looks like or even your physical circumstances. It's an inside-out thing. It's something God creates on the inside. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he makes that amazing statement, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Can you really say that today, that you're content whatever the circumstances? Now, I've noticed that covetousness seems to strike us in different ways. Some people are covetous for clothes. Others are covetous for automobiles. Others covet amazing-looking homes. Others covet fancy, exotic vacations. Many people covet a person, really. They covet a person. Maybe relationally, you've looked at someone else's spouse. Maybe they have qualities you go, wow, that'd really be great to have in a marriage partner. Maybe you, you look at someone and, wow, they've got this amazing work ethic. I mean, they really work hard. And you go, wow, I wish my spouse was like that. I heard about one lady who came home and her husband was just stretched out on the sofa, just really kicked back. He had the remote control in his hand. He was just kicked back watching the basketball game. She was amazed. She said, I thought you said you were going to prepare dinner this evening. He said, I did prepare dinner. I made a pasta salad and the directions told me to chill one hour before serving. He was chilling all right. And maybe you, maybe you look at someone else's mate and you go, I, I, I want that person. And really in your heart, you covet them. I'll, some people that I know, so many dear friends at Grace who struggle with a, this contentment thing. And, and one of the reasons is because at this season in their lives, and I'm so empathetic, this season in their lives, they're single. Some of them have, have been single. Others are single again. And they, they, they struggle with being content as a single person. I was moved by what Julie Norton wrote. She's a single Christian woman. She said, I thought of the black oil I had recently spilled on my carport as I tried to fix my broken lawnmower. 
a limited budget and lack of a husband had left this dirty task in my incapable hands, she writes. I thought of the myriad of wedding invitations that I had received that were always addressed to Julie and Guest. You know, I highly value contentment. I strive to live a balanced life filled with gratitude to God with the blessings of my singleness and prayerful honesty about many unmet expectations. And I think it's possible to cultivate a grateful heart even when your prayers for a mate seem to run forward like the yellow highway lines on a flat horizon. In my life, I've seen some bitter Christian women, she writes, who were single. Some have developed a sharp sense of hatred for all males. Some, longing to be married, have taken matters into their own hands and regretted it later. Others have placed their whole lives on hold as they sit by the telephone and they wait for Mr. Wright to call. But God calls me to have an attitude of contentment regardless of who fixes my lawnmower. Now, please don't misunderstand me today. If you're single out there, it is not wrong to long to be married. That's not the point at all. That's a wonderful thing if God gives you that mate that he wants you to link your life with. But please make certain that your priority in life is not some horizontal relationship with a man or woman. Please understand that what this commandment is after, what God desires is for our primary relationship to be with him, whether we're married or single, because that's one of the keys to true contentment. So as we wrap up today, not only this sermon, but this entire series, let's ask that all-important question that we always try to ask, how in the world can we apply this to our lives? Because that's really the bottom line, isn't it? I'll say it again. God did not give us this amazing Bible to fill our heads with facts. He gave us his very word to transform our lives. So as we go down the home stretch here and wrap up, I want to ask the question, how can we really apply this to our lives? I'm going to give you four quick suggestions that if you really want to live as a contented person, married or single, whatever your economic status may be, whatever your season of life, young or old, I believe that these suggestions are golden for you. Number one, number one, try to stop comparing. Can we, can we just keep it real for a minute? That's probably the greatest road to discontentment right there. In our culture, we compare and compete, compare and compete. And we look at what others have. And, and believe me, we are incited to do this by all the marketing techniques, all the slick marketing methods. We are incited to want more and more things, many of which, most of which, we do not need. Stop the comparison game. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. Catch this next line. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. In other words, when they're playing this comparison game, what does he say? 
They are not wise. A key to discontentment is to always look at your situation and try to compare it to others. Listen, would you say this? And by the way, everybody's guilty of this. Business people do this all the time. They want to be as big and as bad and as wonderful and successful as the other business person. Preachers do this all the time. They want a bigger church. They want more success, more reputation, more respect than this other guy over here. We're all eaten up with this. We've got to say, God, I thank you for what you've given to me. And I rejoice in that. And if you want me to have more, if you want me to have something different, awesome, bring it on. But I'm going to rejoice in this day that you've made and rejoice in what you've given to me. Second, I would suggest that you learn to gain your significance from God, not things. Gain your significance from God, not things. U.S. News and World Report did a a survey, and they asked people, what would it take to make you truly satisfied? They talked in terms of the American dream. What, what, do, you, what do you really dream for, desire? What, what would be the ultimate fulfilling life for you? How much money would it take? And they asked people who made $25,000 or less. You know what the average was that they said would make them truly satisfied? The average, U.S. News and World Report discovered, was $54,000. That's what they said. And then they surveyed a whole bunch of people, thousands of Americans who make around $100,000 a year. What would it take to make you truly satisfied? The average was $194,000 is what they said. In other words, the result of the survey, somewhere about twice where we currently are, would really make us satisfied and contented. But the problem with that is it's a moving target. James writes in James 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship of the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We don't need to be obsessed with things in this world, thinking somehow that that's where satisfaction is going to be found. Listen, if your (coughs) satisfaction is connected to to your uh, achievements, what happens when the achievements wane? If your satisfaction is related to appearance, what happens when your appearance is just not as good as it used to be? You want your contentment, your satisfaction in life to be connected to the fact that you're loved by an awesome, holy, almighty, heavenly Father who loves you unconditionally. And if your significance is attached to that and you understand that Jesus would have died for you if you were the only person on the planet who needed it, how much satisfaction can you stand? That's what it has to be rooted in. That's where significance needs to be found. Third, I would suggest that you grow in your generosity. I've noticed an interesting thing throughout the years the people who tend to be the most generous tend to be the most contented. I'll stand by that statement, folks. The people who tend to be the most generous tend to be the most contented. Why is that? Because they've discovered that their life doesn't consist in the abundance of their possessions. 
So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Timothy rather, chapter 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That should be our pursuit in life. Godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And finally, thank God every day for what you have. Boy, if there was ever a season when we ought to practice gratitude, it ought to be right now, right? Thanksgiving is on the way this week. It's a time to pause and reflect, a time hopefully to be with people you love and just to take stock of how good God has been to you. And I would challenge you this Thanksgiving season, before you dig into the turkey or whatever, or for all you vegetarians, before you dig into the tofurkey, okay? Right. One thing that we've practiced through the years is before we dig in, you know what? We go around the table and we all just state one or two things that we're really, really grateful for. It is such an awesome moment in the life of our family. And uh, it's usually, it's often a very moving moment as we're reminded of how good God has really been. Well, this has been an amazing series, but you know what I've felt every single week? Wow, God nailed me again. I thought I was doing okay with this, but every week I walk out, wow, God nailed me again. And here's what the Bible says about keeping commandments. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, that doesn't say that one sin is as bad as another. That's a ridiculous statement, by the way. One sin is not necessarily as bad. There are all different levels of sin in terms of the implications. But what that is saying, hear me, is that all it takes is one sin, no matter how small, to make you guilty. If you're hanging over a cliff, hanging for your life on a 10-link chain, how many links have to break for you to perish and fall? Just one. Just one, that's all. It only takes breaking one sin to make us guilty before God. And so these commandments, I just want to remind us again as we close, were not given to make us better people primarily. That wasn't the purpose. When we look at the straight edge of this law, it reminds us how crooked we really are. And it ought to remind me and it ought to remind you that we desperately need a Savior. Have you cried out to the Savior? Have you given him your life? Have you opened your heart to him? Have you said, I'm falling far short of your standard, God. I need your grace because the only way you're ever gonna make heaven is not by keeping commandments. That's a lost cause. It's by the amazing grace of God. And here's the miracle. When you receive that grace, then you want to keep these commandments because you are so grateful. Father, thank you for your amazing grace and how these commandments remind us over and over again of how far short we fall of your standard and your glory. Lord, thank you that in this season of thanksgiving, we can be reminded all over again of how good you really are, not just in our country and our culture, which is so special, but in our personal lives as well. So help us to be grateful people this week, grateful for your goodness, grateful for your grace.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Ushers, would you please come now and receive our tithes and offerings? I fall apart You're the one 